So in a 2005 interview on 60 Minutes, Tom Brady was on there. Now, let me just tell you this. I had planned this opener weeks ago, okay, before everything has unfolded. And so I thought last night when I saw the final play, should I scrap it? Is it going to be too hard? And then I thought, no, by the sovereign will of God, this was the opener I had planned for this Sunday. So we're going to go with it. All right. So in this interview, 2005, Tom Brady said this. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Three more. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is important. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Now, obviously, we know he's gone on to add more Super Bowl rings, but after his fourth Super Bowl championship, he said this, you know what my favorite ring is? The next one. Now, from an achievement standpoint, he has it all, right? He's easily a top candidate in my pick for best quarterback of all time. He now has six Super Bowl rings. He has money, fame, success, respect. He's married to a supermodel. So a Super Bowl champion is married to a supermodel with healthy, beautiful children. He lives in an actual mansion, right? But there's one thing he doesn't have, satisfaction. See, when you hear those interviews, and that was just one, you could pick a a few other ones. It's more than a drive to be the best. When you hear him talk, when you look at him, when you see into his eyes, you can see a restlessness, a searching for something that will satisfy his soul. What more does he need to be satisfied? Now, none of us in this room share Tom Brady's accolades, but all of us share something in common with him, and that is the struggle to find contentment. Satisfaction and contentment is elusive. And when it comes to satisfaction and contentment, we often think, we believe the lie, that our dissatisfaction is simply the result that we haven't achieved our dreams and goals. We've set these dreams, we've set these goals, and we thought, of course, I should be dissatisfied. I haven't reached those things that I think when I get them, that I'll be satisfied. We think when we finally cross the finish line and attain those prizes, those dreams, and those goals that, we'll, that we've worked so hard to achieve, we think then I will be satisfied. But it doesn't take much to look around at those who have achieved beyond your dreams, beyond your goals. Look at those who've earned more money than you ever will. Look at those who've attained and reached job titles beyond your ability, who've reached for the stars and, listen, have actually grabbed them. None of them, none of that stuff quenches their thirst to satisfy their soul. Don Draper, who's the fictional advertising executive in Mad Men, chased happiness and contentment his whole life. And at one point in a critical scene, he's talking about contentment and satisfaction. And there's a guy across the the, the meeting space from him who said, you know what? I'm happy with 50% of the market share. And he, his face goes stone cold. And he's thinking, you're happy with 50%? I'm not happy until I get 100%. And then he looks at him and he says, what is happiness? Well, happiness is that moment before you need more happiness. And friends, the need for more happiness always comes. In one line, Draper exegetes the relentlessness and the discontent of the human heart. This morning, we're looking at John chapter 4 as Jesus meets the woman at the well. This is one of, it's the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with an individual in the Gospels. And they talk about lots of things. They talk about politics and religion, but most importantly, they talk about finding satisfaction and contentment at the soul level. Now, where are you this morning? Are you satisfied? Is there a deep, foundational satisfaction in the soul, a contentment that's not based on the circumstances around you, but that is based in and rooted in the Lord God. 
As we go throughout the passage today, there's a question I want you to be asking yourself. What more do I need to be satisfied? What more do you need to be content? And as we work our way through this passage, we're going to see it divides into three movements. First, as Jesus meets this woman, he's going to invite her to come and drink. And then as we go forward, Jesus is going to invite the woman to come and worship. And at the end, we're going to see the woman begin to invite people in her town to come and see. So come and drink, come and worship, and come and see. Let's start in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had, uh, when, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So what John is doing, like a good storyteller, is he's setting the scene, okay? He's, he, he's making sure you know all that's about to happen so that you can be able to engage in this conversation that John is going to show us here in just a minute. So what we find is that Jesus has been uh, ministering in the Judea region, which is where Jerusalem is in, in that general region, and he decides it's time to move his ministry up north to Galilee, which would have been about a three days walk. And he does so because uh, it, it's starting to heat up. The, the, the scrutiny of the Pharisees is there, and, 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 and they're starting to look at him. As the popularity is increasing, their eyes are starting to really focus and dial in on him. And so Jesus decides it's time to move up north to Galilee, where he spends and, and, and does most of his uh, ministry. Now, from Judea to, Samaria, uh, to, uh, to Galilee, the, the shortest and most direct route would have you travel through this region called Samaria. Now, every people and every place have a history. And Samaria's history explains why Jews and Samaritans despised one another. If you go about 750 years before this day when Jesus arrives at the well, this land known as Samaria was actually northern Israel. It was the northern kingdom um, of Israel. If you look at your history books, in 722, the nation of Assyria comes down and they conquer this northern kingdom of Israel. Now, following that military victory, the Assyrians um, took all of the prominent Jews, the wealthy, the educated, the artisans, the business professionals, and they deported them all to Assyria. And the idea was that these are skilled, educated, prominent people. They can better our society. Then they took some of their people, probably the people they didn't really want to interact with, and they shipped them all over to uh, northern Israel to settle in this newly conquered land. Now, this was a very common practice in the ancient world after you defeated a neighboring geopolitical nation. Now, here's what happens, okay? You've got uh, Jews deported, and now you have Assyrians coming in, so you have living in this region the left-behind Jews and these newly imported Assyrians. And over time, the left-behind Jews intermarried with the newly arrived Assyrians. And the result of that was a racially, culturally, and religiously mixed people group that became known as the Samaritans. Okay, that's how they came to be. Now, to the Jews... When they looked at them, they saw uh, that they weren't Jewish enough. They, they considered them to be um, racial half-breed sellouts who abandoned the purity and integrity of Judaism. And eventually, the Jews decided that they were no longer welcome to come worship at their temple in Jerusalem. So what did this people group do? Well, they said, if we're not welcome to worship at your, at your temple, we're just going to build our own. And so they, they, uh, they looked through the first five books of the Old Testament, which were part of their scriptures. And they said, you know what? We think actually Jerusalem isn't the place for worship. It's actually Mount Gerizim. And they built a temple there. And they wrote their own sacred scriptures. And they wrote their own history books. And they kind of developed as, an, as a separate um, people group. Now, you can imagine because of uh, you have one group looking down on another and you have another group who's uh, racially diverse and ethnically diverse and culturally diverse, that the tensions between those two people groups are high. I mean, just look at our nation right now, right? 
when you have differences, instead of uh, um, finding how to live at peace, we often uh, result to tribalism and there's tension there. The Jews considered the Samaritans to be perpetually unclean. Here's what that means, that they could never, there was nothing they could do to become clean enough to enter into the presence of God and go into the temple. In fact, there were some elitist Jews that thought to even step foot, to cross the boundary line into that region was to make yourself unclean, that there's just an uncleanliness about the very land because of the people who live there. So I don't even want to step foot into that region. And so instead of taking the shortest direct route to Galilee, you would have some Jews who would would cross the Jordan River, go all the way around, add extra days to your journey just to get to where you needed to go. But Jesus was determined to go into Samaria. And when he came to Sychar, he stops to rest and have a drink because he was tired and thirsty. Now, as you read through the scriptures, as you read through the gospels in particular, you're going to see these moments where Jesus' divinity is on full display. And you're going to find these other moments where his humanity is on full display because Jesus is God with us. He is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. So like us as a man, when he travels on foot in the middle of the Middle Eastern desert, he's going to get tired. He's going to get thirsty, and he stops here at the sixth hour, which was noon, for water, food, and rest. And Jesus is sitting at this well when a woman comes to draw water. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And he gives us this parenthetical note, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So he's traveling with his disciples. He sends them into the city to go get food, and he stays at the well. And a woman comes to draw water. Now, in this culture at this time, it was generally uh, one of the women's tasks to retrieve the water for the day. But it usually happened earlier in the day, and, and it usually happened with, with other women. And, and the hope there would be that it provided safety and numbers as well as a, a, a regular connection point with other women in the community. But John points out to us that she comes alone and that she comes at noon. And being that it was noon, being that people would be kind of in the middle of their day, she doesn't expect to meet anyone, let alone Jesus at the well. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't work according to our expectations. He meets us and exceeds our expectations. And not only that, but Jesus, when he says to the woman, give me a drink, he crosses all kinds of social barriers to engage this woman and to extend to her his grace. Now, at, at, when you hear that, our modern eyes or our modern ears hear, give me a drink of water, it, it seems like a rather benign request. But friends, Jesus' question to her is shocking. And the woman's response confirms that. Look with me at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it? that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The woman can't imagine that Jesus would engage her. The fact that he's even there is odd, and now he's asking her for a drink. The, the, the woman outlines the social barriers that Jesus has just crossed. First, Jews don't talk to Samaritans, let alone ask them for a drink. They have no dealings with them. And also in this time and in this culture, unfamiliar men and women don't engage in casual conversations in public. And here we see Jesus crossing racial, social, cultural, and gender barriers to ask her for a drink. Now, why would he do that? Well, on the surface, he's, he's thirsty. He has nothing to draw from, and she does, but it's much more than that. You see, Jesus is on a mission. His whole life had a singular focus to seek and save the lost. And because he has a singular focus, he is willing to cross any barriers, whether they're social, political, what have you, in order to accomplish his mission. My fellow brothers and sisters, are we? 
Are we as determined to cross social barriers, pressures in our culture and society in order to accomplish the singular purpose that God has given us? As we consider what it means to be disciples who make disciples, are we willing to cross social barriers to seek the lost so that Jesus might save them? See, if we claim to follow Jesus, we can't just follow the things we like about him and his word. We have to follow him in his mission and his motives and his methodology. And as we study the scriptures, we see that Jesus had a methodological way of interacting with people. There was purpose behind his interactions. He's willing to cross pain lines. He's willing to cross social barriers to extend grace to anyone. Now look at me at verse 10. Let's see how Jesus responds to her question. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who it is that it's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus says, if you knew the gift I have, if you knew who, who, who I was, you would be asking me for water. See, Jesus skips right over the question and flips the whole conversation upside down. You notice his request for drinking water has become an offer of living water. The one who was requesting is now putting an offer on the table. That's one of the things I love about Jesus. He just has this way of taking everyday simple conversations and making them profound. See, the conversation started with a simple request for water, and now he is talking about the contentment and satisfaction of the soul. See, this woman thought she was just going out for some water, and her life is about to change. When I was prepping for this sermon, I was thinking about uh, some of your stories, and as I look around the room this morning, I'm reminded of your stories. Some of you were just on your way to work, going to the train station that morning, and you ran into a couple of guys handing out coffee. Or some of you were just going into the teacher's lounge to grab a bagel. You were just walking through the common and you saw a group of people handing out seltzer. You see, Jesus meets us in the everyday stuff of life. He takes the simple and he makes it profound. Now you notice that Jesus calls this living water a gift from God. If you, if you knew the gift of God, and that word gift is important because it means that it is not a compensation for a life of works. He doesn't say there, 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 there's a paycheck if you'll just do these things. You can earn this gift. Salvation, eternal life, living water is a gift that you receive by God, from God by his grace. It's a gift. Remember, Jesus said, if you knew me and the gift I have to offer you, you would have asked me, for a drink. You see, to receive this living water from God, you have to come to a place where you recognize that there's a giver and he's generous and he has a gift that is valuable and full of worth. And then once you have valued and, and esteemed the, 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 the worthiness of this gift, you come to with a posture of humility to say, can I have it? You're willing to ask for it. See, living water can't be earned. You can't barter for it. You can't make a trade, but it is free for the asking. If you'll come to a place of humility to ask, it will be given to you. Romans 10, 13 says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I think it's significant that Jesus is highlighting the asking, the, 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 that, that it's something we have to ask for because in our pride, our pride keeps us from ever asking people for things. We don't like to be in that place of vulnerability. Asking keeps us, and our, our pride keeps us from asking because we believe we're all set. I can do this on my own. I don't, I don't need your help. That would, that, would, that would be to show some kind of vulnerability, something lacking in me. I am all set. If anyone needs to be helping, it's me helping you. See, if satisfaction is to be found, I want to go looking for it. I want to be the one to achieve it. I want to acquire it on my own and on my own terms. 
See, asking and acquiring represent two different approaches to contentment and satisfaction. So on the one hand, you have asking. This assumes contentment and satisfaction is something you receive, right? If you're asking for something, it's something that you're going to receive. Acquiring assumes contentment and satisfaction will be achieved. And those are two fundamental different postures. Asking means contentment and satisfaction is something I'll receive. Acquiring is satisfaction will be something I achieve. It will be, if I get it, it's because I will do the work. I will earn it. Where asking says, it is outside of me. I don't even have the means to achieve it. So it must be something that is outside of me that I receive. Acquiring and achieving puts me in a place of control and pride where we look for contentment and satisfaction in all the wrong places. Asking and receiving puts me in a place of vulnerability and humility where I have to receive something from God. Look at how the prophet Jeremiah illustrates the posture of achieving and acquiring, okay? Keep that in mind, achieving and acquiring. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils, They have forsaken me, this is God speaking, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So in this posture of achieving and acquiring, we do two evils. First, we forsake God, who is this fountain of living waters, that's available to us, and we try to go do it on our own. And the illustration is we're, we're hewing out cisterns for ourselves. But the problem is we're not really good at building cisterns. And when we try to hew them out for ourselves, no matter how hard we try, every cistern we build is broken and doesn't hold water. So we go out and we, 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 we gather the materials and supplies. We get the best cistern builders we've ever met. And we build these cisterns and we fill it with water only to find that they're cracked and broken and all the water that we filled into it. By the time we go back, because we're thirsty, we find it's been emptied. So we remain thirsty. But friends, there is another way Look at what the prophet Isaiah says in 55 verse 1. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. How do you buy something that costs nothing? Ask for it. You come and say, I'm in need. See, friend, you don't have to dig out cisterns for yourselves because there's an invitation to a table that is sourced by a never-ending fountain of living water where the thirsty are satisfied. Do you know what a cistern is? It's like a big tank where you store water. Do you see the analogy? See, in, in cistern building, you want to gather and be independent so that you don't have to go to the well anymore, that you don't have to go to the source anymore so that you can be self-sufficient. Cisterns are for self-sufficiency and independence. And God says, don't build cisterns. You're not good at it anyway. Come to the fountain of living water that never runs dry. See, in cistern building, we think we're going to run out. We're not going to have enough so that we need to gather. But God is a fountain that never runs dry. You don't have to worry that he's, he's going to run out of satisfaction and contentment and life to give you. He is a never-ending fountain. It's always flowing. It's always ready. It's always available. And friends, it's free for the asking. So the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock. So clearly, the woman still thinks Jesus is talking about actual water, 
right? She hasn't picked up on the metaphor yet, and that's fine. The word that Jesus is using for living water could have been used in a metaphorical sense. It could also be used in a literal sense. It's, it's a word that refers to fresh running spring water. So it's a different thing than well water. This is, this is uh, like the, at the source, right? This is going to the actual source uh, that, that the wa- well water is, is, is drawing from. She's not picking up on the metaphor yet. And, and so she's wondering, you know, how are you going to get that living water? You, you would have to dig a deeper, different well to get to this new water that you're talking about. And, and, and plus, I don't, you don't have anything to draw water from. You don't have well building equipment. Like the, the whole thing seems preposterous to her. And so she asks him, how? How are you going to get this living water? She's looking at a man who began the conversation asking her for a drink, and now he's got some access to water that she knows nothing about. So Jesus said to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus answers her question, where is he going to source this water? And he begins to, uh, to further explain his metaphor. So what he does is he, he compares the physical water in this well, and he compares it to the things of this world. So he's saying, you know, just like when you drink this water, eventually you get thirsty again, right? You drink water, your thirst goes away, but eventually what happens? You got to come back to the well. And this woman knows it. She comes to this well every day to draw water. And what he's saying is likewise, satisfaction that this world has to offer is temporary and fleeting. It will not last. When you drink the, 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 the world's water, you will be thirsty again. But he's telling her, dear woman, there is satisfaction that lasts and endures. Jesus says the water he provides, provides enduring satisfaction, contentment that meets all of your needs and desires. And family, that water is offered to you and to me. John has preserved this conversation, not merely so we would marvel at at the offering that Jesus gave to this woman, but that we would marvel that that offer is still available to us today. What Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, I've got something for you that is as basic and necessary as water to you spiritually, as that water is to you physically, that you have to drink water in order to live. I've got something that is just as basic and necessary for you. And what's more is my offer is more than a simple drink. It is a wellspring. It's a wellspring. Only Jesus can satisfy the deep needs of the soul because Jesus fills us from the inside out. When we ask for living water, what he does is dig a well that goes deep into your soul, and from it comes this internal and eternal wellspring so that we'll never be thirsty again. So it doesn't matter if you're in seasons of drought. It doesn't matter if you're in seasons of famine because you have a wellspring deep inside your soul that is feeding your thirsty soul. Now, the woman says, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, what I love is there's a mix of of faith and understanding here. She hasn't got it all figured out yet, but she's going, if you say you've got something like that to offer me, I would love to take you up on that offer. She is a great example of what it means to have faith that seeks understanding. And so she asks for that living water, even though she doesn't fully understand all that Jesus is, ask, is offering to her. That is a model of faith for us. We don't come to Christ once we have every single thing figured out, every kind of a, a, a how and why answered. We come because there is an offer so beautiful and so meaningful, and so valuable on the table. And so we may not know how he's going to do it all, how he's going to figure it out, how he's going to satisfy the deep longings of my soul, because I've got some some deep issues there, some deep wounds that you're going to have to deal with. But we say, Jesus, if you've got that living water, bring it. I'm in need. Now, let's look at verse 16 to see Jesus's invitation for her to come and worship. He's, he's offered and said, come and drink. And he goes down deep into her soul to say, come and worship. Though Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. 
And the woman answered him, I have no husband. But Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So what you've said is true. So the offer to come and drink is filled with good news, right? It's filled with this offer of soul-satisfying water so that we'll thirst no more. But in order for her to really receive this good news, she's going to have to confront some of the bad news in her life. The water that Jesus offers goes deeper than Jacob's well. And for the living water to uh, well up inside her soul, Jesus is drilling down deep. And so he cuts to the chase and he gets at this level of discontentment and dissatisfaction. We find out that she's had five husbands and now she's living and sleeping with a man who is not her husband. Now listen, we don't get the details of all those marriages and, and how they ended. It's likely uh, that, that there were some that ended in death and some that ended in divorce, but no matter the details, and it's good not to speculate, she was a real person with a real life. Here's what we can be sure of. Her life has been marked by suffering. It's been marked by grief. It's been marked by brokenness. I mean, just those details alone, you say, man, surely her life has not worked out the way that she had wanted. She's likely experienced tragedy, hardship, and pain. Over the course of her life, she's experienced suffering that's come from being a sinner. She's experienced suffering from being sinned against. And she's also experienced the suffering that comes from simply living in a broken and sinful world. Her life has not worked out the way she's envisioned. And now she's living with a man outside of the covenant of marriage. And if we were looking at her life, if we were sitting across the table having coffee with her, we probably wouldn't blame her, right? We would think, man, uh, after five tries, some ending in death and tragedy, some ending in divorce and abuse, whatever it may be, we might go, I don't blame you for not wanting to enter into that kind of commitment again. But friends, that doesn't excuse her sin or make it right. No matter our circumstances, thriving and flourishing are always found by pursuing God's design and order. And here's what I love about Jesus. As he confronts her, as he interacts with her, he's both gentle and direct. He doesn't excuse sin. He doesn't look over sin, but he doesn't condemn her either. Look, he exposes her history and her sin without shaming her. He confronts her without condemning her. If you notice, the offer of living water is still on the table. And the good news is, is that her bad news is not the end of her story. It's not final news because her story is still being written. Look what she says in response. Verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know. I don't know if she's trying to change the subject. You know, hey, let's not talk about my history. Or if she's just astonished at Jesus's ability to see through her veneer. But whatever it is, she acknowledges that Jesus is unlike anyone she's ever met at the well. She knows he's no ordinary man, and she concludes he must be a prophet of some kind. And so she shifts the conversation from her husband's to mountains, from her personal story to theology, which is a good reminder that we can often hide behind uh, uh, theological debates. We can use something good and uh, the, the gift of theology to hide our sin. So she says, hey, listen, isn't the big debate between Samaritans and Jews the place of worship? I mean, you guys worship in Jerusalem, not to mention you guys kind of kicked us out anyway. And so we kind of built our own temple on Mount Gerizim. So Jesus responds to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, in other words, what Jesus is saying, he's saying there's coming a day when this whole theological debate on which mountain, the whole thing is going to become obsolete. 
Because God the Father is looking for people seeking out worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now notice a couple things. First, that the Father is one who is seeking. That should astonish us. That God has not turned his back on us because we turned our back on him. He is a God who seeks and saves the lost. And he offers us worship that will transform us out of our selfish ambition and vain pursuits into worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. Now also notice that Jesus draws a line in the sand. What he's saying to her is, listen, worship is not about where you are or what you think. True worship is marked by worship that is in spirit and in truth. So here's what in spirit means. And spirit means that true worship goes beyond places. It goes beyond rituals. It goes beyond customs and ceremonies. Now hear me, all of those things are deeply personal and meaningful, but they become meaningful when they're rooted in a deep personal and an abiding relationship with God. See, if you just go through the motions of ceremony and ritual and liturgy and place, but there's no actual relationship with God, then all of that stuff is just worthless, meaningless ritual and custom. It needs to be connected to the person, a relationship. And in that relationship, all of that stuff becomes significant and meaningful. But often, much of what we call worship is simply going through the motions of ritual. Second, to worship in truth means that our worship aligns with the truth of God as revealed in both his written word and revealed in the word become flesh. Jesus Christ, who himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Simply put, worship is on God's terms, not ours. So it's not about what you think. I know that's really popular, like I feel this or I think this. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. God has spoken. He has outlined what is truth. And so where your truth comes into conflict with God's truth, God's truth doesn't bend to your truth. Your truth bends to his. True worship is, it conforms to God. And it's on his terms, not ours. So the woman goes on and says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. I love this. She's like, listen, I hear what you're saying. And when Messiah comes, he'll sort out all of this stuff. I hear what you're saying. That, that, that's great. This mountain, that mountain, true worship. Messiah, he'll get to speak definitively about this because he is from God. And he's the one that God has raised up to settle all matters. And then at the very end, Jesus says, okay, if I haven't been clear on this, let me, let me just look at you and tell you. I am him. I am the Messiah. The one speaking to you am he. I am the Messiah. I love how people in our culture try to say, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be the Messiah. And it's like, no, no, right here, Jesus said it. I am the Messiah. I am him. So everything I just said is that definitive explanation that you were looking for. It's not about where you worship. It's about who you worship and you will worship according to God's terms. This is one of the most clearest and direct self-declarations from the mouth of Jesus himself that he is the Messiah. He will go on, if you stay with us in uh, the Gospel of John, in John 6.35 to say, I am the bread of life. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Before uh, uh, John 8.58, before Abraham was, I am. John 10.9, I am the door. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five. 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 15, 1, I am the true vine. He's like, you don't like the living water metaphor? I got plenty of them. I got metaphors on metaphors. Jesus is the son of God who's come to save sinners. He is the bread of life to feed your soul. He is the light of the world to fill up the darkness. He is the doorway to heaven to guide you to your final place of rest. He is the good shepherd who leads the flock. Death will be swallowed up because he is the resurrection and the life. He didn't come to point to a way because he is the way. He doesn't speak about truth because he is the truth. He is the vine. And when we're connected to him, 
we will bear much fruit. He is the living water that satisfies the needs of every human soul. So friends, I ask you, what more do you need to be satisfied? What is God withholding from you that you think when you get that, this other thing besides Christ, that you will finally be content and satisfied? If we are going to be satisfied in Christ and worship God in spirit and in truth, we need to identify these broken cisterns that we habitually build in our life, these false wellsprings, which are literally just puddles of mud on the ground that we're lapping up, hoping it will satisfy and fill us. Is it relationships? Do you look to relationships to be the thing where you'll finally find contentment? Is it your career? Is it politics? One of the growing trends is as as religion has declined, people have put an undue weight on politics to be what finally brings satisfaction and contentment. Is it social causes? Is it money? Is it kids? Literally anything. We are great at looking at making false idols. We can look at anything that is good and make it an idol. Whatever it is, whatever you're looking for for contentment and satisfaction, it answers this question. You say, if I have that, if I get there, if they say this about me, then I'll finally know I'm important. Then I'll know I'm significant. Then I'll have security. And then I'll know I am a somebody. Tim Keller writes it like this. Everybody has got to live for something. But Jesus is arguing, if he is not that thing, it will fail you. First, it will enslave you. Whatever that thing is, you'll tell yourself you have to have it or there is no tomorrow. And therefore, anything that threatens it will become, you will become inordinately scared. If anyone blocks it, you'll become inordinately angry. And if you fail to achieve it, you'll never be able to forgive yourself. So not only will it enslave you, but second, If you do achieve it, it will fail to deliver the fulfillment you expected. As you chase it, it enslaves you. Then when you get it, you find it's emptiness. Jesus is saying, I have soul-satisfying water that goes deep down into your soul to fill you up. And I have that water to give you because I am that water. Jesus is the water that your soul needs to be satisfied. So if you're tracking with the story, Jesus has invited her to come and drink. He's explained to her what true worship is. And now let's see how she responds quickly. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So the disciples come back. They've got the food and they see Jesus talking with a woman and no one's brave enough to be going, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you speaking with her? They're shocked to see that Jesus has broken every social norm they've ever learned. And as they enter the scene, right? And they've got like the food and everything and kind of have these looks on her face. The woman leaves. She leaves her jar Right? The very reason that she came to the well has become unimportant and she heads back to town and starts asking people, could this, could the man I just met be the Christ? Now, do we get this explicit confession of faith from her? No, but you can tell this is a woman that has started to experience some change inside of her. She starts going to people in town and sharing about her experience with Christ. She, she goes back to the place where all of those, those bad memories are, the place where her life hasn't measured up. And, and she goes to the people who've likely at times cast judgment on her, been, been talking about her behind her back. And she goes back to them to say, don't look at me, but look at Jesus. Come and see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one we've been looking for? And so she invites them, come and see Jesus. And from her testimony, I don't know what it was about her words, about her passion, about her drive, but they see something changing in her and they all drop what they're doing. It's the middle of the day. They're all going about their normal routines and they drop what they're doing to go and see for themselves. 
Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now up until this point, the hungry and thirsty Jesus has, still hasn't had a, a drink. He still hasn't had a bite to eat. And the disciples return with food. And as per usual, they don't clue into what's going on. They're wondering, did somebody bring this guy a shawarma? You know? And so Jesus uses it as an object lesson to teach them about what it means to make disciples. He says to his disciples, there is a greater sustenance and satisfaction that comes from living on mission than any food you could ever offer. Here we see Jesus meets us at the point of our greatest need. With the woman, she needed to hear that there was water that would quench her thirsty soul. This spoke to her need for satisfaction. To his disciples, they needed to know what food would fuel their soul. This spoke to their need for purpose. See, they, they've already experienced Jesus as that living water satisfying their souls, and now they need a purpose. Now they need something to fill up the time in their life, and Jesus says, I've got food for you. Jesus tells them that being a disciple entails making disciples. You don't get to just be a disciple and not make disciples. The two go hand in hand. They had tasted the soul-satisfying water that Jesus offers, and now they needed to have their priorities aligned with the mission of God. Jesus came with a clear and defined mission and purpose, and those who follow Christ will also have a, a defined mission and purpose. And just like good food fuels your body, living on mission for Christ will fuel your soul. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you just feel malnourished, you feel kind of sluggish. You feel like, man, I, I, I believe in God. I, I read his word and, and I'm doing this, but it, it just doesn't feel like it's all adding up. Have you ever considered that this is actually a result of not eating from the same table that Jesus ate from? He has food that we often know nothing about. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. If you feel mal nourished. Maybe it's because you've been uh, uh, feasting from the vending machine that the world offers instead of eating at the table of God. Are we trying to find direction and meaning and purpose from these vending machines of the world? They fill you up quick, full of carbs, full of nasty things, full of ingredients that you can't even pronounce, right? That's what the world has to offer. Or are we eating the food that comes from the harvest of the field that Jesus points us to in John 4. Every disciple of Jesus, look at me, is a sent disciple. There's no such thing as a non-sent disciple. And we are sent into the field to harvest. And Jesus said, the fields are ready now. Friends, there should be no such thing as bored Christians. We have an incredible mission what would it look like, Seven Mile, if we lifted up our eyes to see that the fields are ready for harvest? Now, John finishes out this section by giving us a glimpse of that harvest. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. Now, don't miss this. Jesus is giving his disciples a lesson, like a 101 on what it looks like to make disciples. Meanwhile, the woman is back in town making disciples. She's doing the work of a true disciple. And you notice she doesn't have it all figured out. She herself is a broken vessel. And we all know that bro broken vessels can't hold water, right? If you have a cracked vase, it's going to leak. But listen, in Christ, all of us who are broken vessels can hold living water. It's the one thing that can't leak out of broken vessels. And as broken vessels, we can hold living water and fill other broken vessels because it's sourced from a fountain that never runs dry. All she knows 
is that Jesus has offered her living water. Something is beginning to change inside of her, and she's inviting others to come and see Jesus. And don't miss this. Samaritans ask a Jew who they would have despised to come stay with them for two days. John tells us that many came to believe because of the woman's testimony. Jesus promised that the harvest was ready, that it was ready for the harvesting. And right here, the next two days, the disciples saw it firsthand. Jesus said, there is a harvest and it's ready. And over the next two days, they saw it unfold. And the last verse in our text says this, it's no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. This passage ends with a declaration that Jesus is the savior of the world. Now, if you take a step back and look at John 3 and John 4, you're gonna see something really cool. Remember in John 3, we saw Nicodemus, right? And in John 4, we have the woman at the well. You have two snapshots that prove that Jesus is the savior for the whole world. John 3, we met Nicodemus, right? In addition to knowing his name, we learned that he is a learned man. He's a powerful man. He's respected. He's orthodox. He is theologically trained. His community looks at him and says, this is a picture of righteousness. In John 4, the woman is unnamed. We never know her name. By contrast, she is unschooled. She has no influence. She's despised. She's a follower of impure religion. Many in her community would have looked down on her and considered her immoral and unrighteous. John 3, Nicodemus, a man, a Jew, a ruler. John 4, a woman, a Samaritan, an outcast. And don't miss this. Both of them need Jesus. Nicodemus and the woman at the well cover every end not just of the spectrum, of any spectrum. Whatever spectrum you can come up with, they cover both ends, and Jesus says, all of you need Christ. What's the point? Everyone needs Jesus. Pastor and preacher H.B. Charles says it well. John 3 teaches us that there was no one beyond the need of grace. You might look at Nicodemus and say, he's measured up. He doesn't need it. No, no, no. No one is beyond the need of grace. And John 4 teaches us that no one is beyond the reach of grace. Everyone needs it, and thanks be to God that his grace reaches every one of us today. The invitation is on the table to come and drink living water, to come and be transformed into a true worshiper who worships God in spirit and in truth. And all of us are invited to a life of meaning, eating, meaning of eating the, the, the food that Jesus offers to have a life of meaning and purpose as we invite others to come and see Jesus.